Welcome to the Hearts Entwined podcast. In this podcast, we'll be having discussions around the secrets which attract lasting, healthy, fulfilling relationships, creating a healthy mindset, and what women should know and understand about men. Introducing your host, Lynn Smith, the Queen of Hearts, relationship expert, trainer, speaker, and best-selling author of The Cupid's Bow Technique. Lynn's mission is to have a positive impact in reducing divorce, domestic violence, and suicide. Welcome to the Hearts Entwined podcast. This is your host, Lynn Smith, the Queen of Hearts. And today, I'm very excited to say that I've got a very special guest all the way from America. His name is Phoenix, I have to get my teeth in for this, Phoenix, as in the bird rising, (laughs) sing. And I'm really delighted to actually, for the first time ever, have a male relationship expert on to talk about his journey and how he's come to be doing what he's doing. And um, so thank you for coming, Phoenix. I'm really delighted to have you on the show. Uh, and please welcome and, and tell us how you actually came to be doing what you're doing. And uh, I'd be interested, and I'm sure the listeners will be, in knowing your story. As a young entrepreneur, I started my first company in my mid-20s. I became very well acquainted very quickly with the world of startups and venture capital, private equity, etc. And it's a very lonely world, especially if you are doing it without, let's say, a small team of other individuals. If you're focused on SaaS, which is an acronym for software as a service, such that you're working with a relatively a remote skill set insofar as you'll have, you know, we had employees in Florida and in Vancouver and you know, all over the place that you're not seeing on a day-to-day basis. So it can end up being a, a tremendous amount of work. It's definitely the kind of job where you're working maybe 14 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. I took 13 days off in three and a half years. I didn't take one weekend off. You just kind of keep plowing through it and uh, and it can be kind of a lonely experience and the more that i kind of saw that happening with myself the more that i thought hey there's definitely something here with regards to uh it being a very unique generation kind of this uh, millennial generation generation z where these kinds of amazing opportunities have come along for us to be able to uh really progress as a group of very passionate people but at the same time human connection seems to get lost in the shuffle and this is both in terms of general socializing but then also when it comes to romantic relationships and uh, i was very blessed i got very lucky and was able to sell the company back in 2017 took about a year off i'm a pretty religious christian so i moved to to israel and uh, after that time moved back to the states and have been praying on it a lot and trying to figure out what is it something that i could do for the rest of my life that would essentially never feel like work even one day of doing it. And the answer for me was very much to be able to help people reconnect with one another, both in a romantic sense, uh, which is where uh, my new company, which is called The Model Man, kind of came from, and uh, and really also focusing on building healthy and fulfilling long-term romantic relationships uh, between two people who aren't coming to find their other half, but rather two people who are already whole, who are looking to be able to find another whole person and then build something very unique and very special. Uh, so this is kind of the roundabout, roundabout Wayland that I found myself in uh, my current company. That's excellent. So 
What would your um, thoughts and views be around the way things are shaping up and the way we've been educated and parented, I'm particularly interested in, around the masculine and feminine energies that are present in relationships? What, what's your perspective around that, Phoenix? Because I know you have got views sure. on that. Of course, you know, uh, the one thing that I have found, which is wonderful about where we are right now, uh, in terms of uh, gender relations, uh, especially in terms of societal expectations as well, is that I'm a, I'm a very deep believer that we are blessed to be alive and getting into relationships at a time where more than arguably any time in human history, or at least contemporary human history, uh, the members of a romantic dyad, so of a couple, are much more so these days able to make the determination for themselves within the context of their relationship, their dyad. What do we want the dynamic to look like? What do we want the gender roles to be in terms of a man and a woman? What do we want? What would that look like for us in terms of something that would be healthy, that would be fulfilling for both of us, something that we would both say, you know, in this relationship, I am willing to give these things, I would be very grateful to receive these other things. That kind of transaction, I feel, used to be much more culturally defined. It doesn't matter what a man wants to do or what a woman wants to do, this is the cultural prescription and you need to fall in line. Now, this isn't to say, I look at my parents, for example, they've been married 41 years this year, have just the most amazing marriage, and it just so happens that uh, if you take a look at what their relationship looks like, it is a bit more traditional insofar as my mother is very educated. She was in the U.S. Uh, Army, the military, um, and has a master's in nursing, was an amazing nurse. Uh, my father was an entrepreneur and a businessman working in telecom. And it just so happened that both of them decided that it would be very fulfilling for the other uh, and for themselves uh, if my father were to work and my mother were to stay at home with my sister and I. And she was just the, the best mom ever. My father was a tremendous provider. And they had that active conversation to be able to decide what they really wanted. And so I feel like that's the wonderful thing that's happening these days in terms of gender relations is that... Uh, this, this concept of cultural prescription uh, has more so these days, it's not perfect, but it's more so these days kind of fallen away to personal preferences. So I think that that's the wonderful part of it. I would say at the same time though, uh, it is definitely a generation. I'm a millennial myself. I'm currently 32 at the, the time of this filming. Uh, I think that for millennial as well as generation Z men, uh, it is a time of tremendous confusion insofar as uh, the operationalization of masculinity and the role that a man is to play uh, in society. What is the expectation of a man? And also, what are the amazing things about being a man that should be cherished as opposed to things that a man almost should be afraid of in himself? And I think that there's a lot of cultural messaging these days uh, that lead men to, to be very deeply confused about their own masculine identities. I agree. And I, I think it's been the same for women as well, because, I, you know, when you think about it in our recent history, women have been more conditioned to look up to men as role models, uh, you know, for um, how we should be doing things and behaving in certain ways to achieve within the workplace environment, for example. 
Um, so, you know, we've become, we've become, I suppose, more masculine in our behaviours and in the way we communicate and, and are tapping more into our masculine energy because, as I say, unconsciously, we've been looking at men as our role models in the workplace, whereas women weren't traditionally, like you said, uh, you know the the roles previously were women stayed at home with the kids and, and men were the providers but um you know that's changing now women are becoming equally um and, and quite rightly so um able to work uh, and earn just as much if not more and provide for the family just as much as their their um masculine partners but what i've seen um is that um unfortunately what I've observed and what I teach is that um, we all have masculine and feminine energy and if you're in an opposite sex type relationship then usually um, your more dominant stronger energy is the same as your gender so if you're the woman in the relationship your more dominant natural feminine energy is the feminine and the vice versa for the man and, and what I've sort of observed is that, uh, you know, through education and parenting recently, and I suppose in our misunderstanding of what equality actually means, because for me, equality means equal opportunities. It doesn't mean being the same as men. You know, men aren't hairy women. There's a reason why there's two genders, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we look different, we think differently, we behave differently, but we've been educated, I think, as women to be more like men. And then we wonder why men aren't as attracted to that masculine energy that we're exuding. And we're not even really realising that we are exuding that masculine energy. And for some men, you know, they tend to sort of back off and, and step more into their feminine. And then we're not as attracted to them anymore. And we wonder why. And for other men, they, you know, they stand firm in that masculine energy. And then, you know, because they can sense there's another masculine energy in the room in the, in the form of the woman they're standing next to who's, who's, who's suddenly wearing the trousers, there can be conflicts that arise. Uh, and we're not even aware that this is all going on unconsciously. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Oh, Lynn, I, I couldn't agree with you more on, on essentially everything that, that you just said. The, the two points I would say that uh, stuck out to me most clearly, uh, one of them, I, I mean, just because we're so on, uh, on the same page on, is that just because, uh, you know, we have men and women being, you know, uh, coming together with regards to equality of, of opportunity doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be the same. And these these differences between us are things that are, are very, very special. And some of them are biologically based. For example, if you take a look at the average grip strength of your average male, it's non-statistically significantly different or statistically significantly uh, stronger than the average uh, grip strength of an Olympic level uh, female weightlifter. There are certain things, there are biological differences. Men tend to be uh, taller. Men tend to have significantly more muscle mass and it's distributed differently. These aren't things that make someone better than or worse than, let's say, a member of the opposite sex. They're simply things that make them different. One of the things that I like to talk about there is uh, uh, visual differences. So, for example, if you take a look at the, uh, there's something called an M-cell, and if you take a look at the fovea, of a, of a woman, for example. So the phobia is an area that uh, if a woman is focused at something, let's say that there is a, a bullseye on a target and we're at an archery range. Uh, both men and women, of course, have phobias. This is an area that we're essentially really focused in on. 
on the target, for instance. So we're, we're looking kind of downfield, taking a look at it. And as for anyone, we're able to, uh, you know, have this peripheral vision, which is a bit more blurry. And then there's an area that we can really focus in on. Well, what happens uh, for women is they have significantly more cones in this area. And a cone is an optic receptor, which essentially codes for color. And because there's more of these cones, a woman can take a look at two things that for a man would seem like the same color and say, no, that's not the same color. It's, you know, this isn't white, this is eggshell. For example, you know, this isn't blue, this is aquamarine. And even something as small as this can, you know, result over, you know, millennia into these fascinating social constructs of, God, you know, my, my husband, he just can't figure out how to match the shoes with the belt. <laughs> how, Lynn, can he not match the shoes with the belt? Or can't he tell that those are navy pants? You can't wear the dark navy with the black blazer. <laughs> The guy in the meanwhile is looking down his pants like, these are the same color. <laughs> There's no difference between these things. And this is, again, it's a biological difference that has become coded over a long time as this sociological difference in terms of, oh, you know, this idea of, oh, you know, men can, they can't color coordinate. And in the meanwhile, men have more receptors, right, that code for movement and action. And this is why, let's say that you'll come home and you'll watch your husband watching the Formula One and be like, God, this, honey, this is so stupid. All it is is a car driving around a track over and over <laughs> and over again. And your husband may say, I know, isn't this great? <laughs> this is the most fascinating thing. We like explosions. We like movement. Because to us, that is literally something that is stimulating. Versus if you take us, you know, if you show us two shades of black and say this is onyx and this is midnight, we're going to say, what the hell is going on? And we're going to be confused out of our minds. Uh, so, you know, these sorts of little differences are things to, re to really cherish and to enjoy, I would say. Um, and and I, I totally agree with you. You know, I think that there's, uh, there's a lot of different sides of cultural movements. I think that a lot of people will adopt the same title but have it mean very different things. For example, the, the term feminism or uh, the terms men's rights, for example, these are very loaded, culturally loaded yes. terms. And people, of course, will kind of take up the banner, but it's this general statement, you know, this general term of feminism, men's rights or MRA, and, and we'll just run with it and basically, you know, put everything into that box that they believe and then use that title to justify their beliefs. And, and one of the big ones there is this concept of equality of opportunity versus equality of outcome. Uh, I think that someone would be ill-advised, any human being would be ill-advised to say that there should not be equality of opportunity. Everyone, I mean, just from a social Darwinist perspective, should have the, the freedom to put their skills on display. Absolutely. And, you know, whoever is, uh, you know, let's say for a given job, for example, everyone should have an equal opportunity to be able to get that job. Doesn't matter if you're brown like I am or, you know, the Caucasian, you know, it doesn't matter kind of what you are, what you look like, whether you're a man or woman, doesn't matter. Whoever is the person who is really the best suited for the job should end up getting that job. So the opportunity is there, but the equality of outcome issue is the one that I think people struggle with more. Uh, so, for example, if it is uh, using the uh, a man or a woman example, if a man is working longer hours at a more dangerous job and, you know, so on, so I keep listing it out, uh, the man should make more money. And if a woman is working longer hours 
at a more precarious job or a job that let's say is just very, very uh, difficult to be able to do. For example, my father used to work in telecom. The number of women I have an absurd amount of respect for who are uh, computer scientists doing things that just blow my mind. I mean, it, I have no right to make as much money as they do, for instance, uh, based on the difficulty of my job. You know, then they should be paid more. This idea that just because someone is a different race or just because someone is uh, a different gender and doesn't really matter what the job title is, everybody should get paid the same and these sorts of things. I, I personally don't believe that. There needs to be a quality of opportunity, but there should not be a forced equality of outcome unless every variable is equivalent across, be it men and women or different races or anything like that, different ages, doesn't matter. So that's, I'm a very big believer in that. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that's a very common sense of approach. And um, I suppose what, what I've observed is that, um, you know, that it worries me to some extent that, that we're gearing more and more to um, educating and parenting our children to be gender neutral. Yeah. And, and this is what I'm a bit afraid of to some degree, because what for me you know, in what I teach and what I've observed and what I've experienced and what I've implemented works in a relationship to create that passion, to create that intimacy, to create that fulfillment, to create the sparks, is that um, polarization of the masculine and feminine energies. You know, the more polarized that is in your relationship, the more sparks are going to fly and the more passion you're going to have. And, and, you know, and if you become a bit more gender neutral, in other words, if you if your masculine and feminine energies are very similar and are sort of meeting in the middle and not very polarized, um, you, you know, you're becoming more gender neutral or, or even gender neutered. And there isn't that attraction there. There isn't that passion there, you know, and, and the relationship might as well be dead. And, and I, I don't think people are realizing, you know, in, in their efforts to sort of try and put us all in the same box when we're not the same. Um, yeah. that this is happening in our intimate relationships. Yeah. Uh, Lynn, you're, you're still right. I, I, and I think you made the point uh, a few moments ago, which really lines up with this nicely, that you know women appear to be, in some cases, self-masculinizing and men are self-feminizing. Yes. Uh, I think that these days, one of the big challenges that certainly not only I have found that I experience as a man, but... Uh, but many men experience is that the uh, it appears to be the cultural messaging that we're getting is that what we should aspire to as men more than anything else is essentially being polite and well-behaved. And I do not believe that that is uh, essentially what men were born to do. Uh, I'm a very deep believer that men are, like, for example, I've got a variety of kind of you know, generic rules for men, none of them having to do with, with women whatsoever insofar as a man's interaction with a woman per se, other than that I, I'm a deep believer, my motto for the men that I coach is that leave every woman better than you found her. Yes. That is my, my basic rule when it comes to, to relationships. I'm a huge, huge believer in that. But I think that the one thing for men that we really need is, is not only support, but responsibility. Yes. One of the, yeah. you know, one of the big challenges that we have uh, as men is that, uh, you know, a, a man's life, really, and again, this is nothing about women's lives, I'm specifically talking about in two men here, is that life is nothing but responsibility. And life, if you accept that the majority of life is in a certain way, shape or form, a kind of suffering, and I don't mean this in a negative way. You know, we're going to have parents who pass away, we're going to have friends who come in and out of our lives, 
we're going to be sacrificing at work. We're going to be sacrificing, you know, for our family to be able to make sure that they're taken care of. We can't do everything that we want to do, et cetera. There's a tremendous amount of sacrifice. And because of that, I think that we, to a certain extent, end up having this Peter Pan syndrome of not wanting to grow up. Because essentially, when you are, let's say, a bit more on the childish side, part of the thing that makes that very alluring is the concept that if you don't grow up, then that means you can be anything. There is, you know, this potentiality out there that you can be anything, do anything, etc., to the point where if you actually pick a direction to go in, then this essentially means that you're shutting the doors to all of the other ones, and this can come with a real sense of bereavement and a real sense of grief that you've shut off these other doors of things that, you know, you, you would want to do in your life. Um, I, I have a client now, for example, and he wants to, you know, used to be very, very successful in the sports world uh, and, you know, wants to really just achieve at the top level there, but is really in his first very, very serious relationship and his job is finally taking off. And of course, you know, a lot of these things in life, it's almost like air in a balloon where you, you have a very finite amount of air there. And yes, you can squeeze one part of the balloon and the other part is going to get bigger, but all of a sudden that part you just squeeze is not so big anymore. So you may have to give up a certain parts of your life to be able to make room for other parts. And this can be very, very challenging for men because we want to, to predict, fundamentally predict. And you know, certain terminology that becomes synonymous with this is that we want to control our environment. We want to dominate our environment. I like to say that a man's wish to dominate is very different than a wish to subjugate. And I think that unfortunately, uh, these days, the cultural messaging is that a man's wish to dominate and control is equivalent to a wish to subjugate other individuals, namely women. And I do not believe that that's true. Um, I think that it can be misused to be able to subjugate other people uh, with, without doubt. Uh, but it's not something where I think that, uh, that those two things are equivalent. And I think it leads to men essentially trying to run away from the very, very deep sense of peace that a man can get if he develops a very stable environment for himself. And this comes from saying, okay, if life is going to be suffering, if I need to take on responsibilities for myself, for my family and the people around me, what I need to do is I need to choose my suffering. I need to choose a given route, a given direction that I wanna go in, and, and I need to pick one that I make the conscious decision that I am willing to take this quote unquote burden on because it means something to me. Because if someone, especially if it's a man, if a man is forced to take on a responsibility, uh, then he's going to uh, suffer in a very painful way every single day of his life. So he needs to take responsibility for, for his life and for the actions therein. And I find that by doing that, though, it really creates that stability, which is going to lay the groundwork for everything positive in a masculine life. And this includes eventually uh, having a very fulfilling romantic relationship. I absolutely agree. And the way I, I suppose I teach what you've just said is that, you know, when I talk about what creates passion is the polarization of the masculine and feminine energies. I'm not sure. saying women need to be in their feminine all the time. You know, there's there's, sure. there's appropriate times and what and it's the reason why we have got masculine energy 
uh, to use it, you know, such as if we're in a fearful, dangerous situation or if we need that control like you were talking about um, in, in, in a workplace situation, for example. And the same with men, you know, there is, there is appropriate times when they need to sort of tap into that more compassionate, nurturing feminine energy that they've got. But, you know, behind closed doors for the most part is when we forget to, as women, to take those trousers off, you know, and, and, and sure. be our true natural feminine selves and let him take care of us. Sure. Uh, and sure. the way I explain around, you know, what 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 makes it a great relationship against what makes a, a an abusive type relationship is mm-hmm. that you can have that polarization of energies. And if it's from a place of love and you, you know, you've got that self-worth, you've got that self-esteem, you've got that confidence with within both parties and you've got a very healthy, fulfilling relationship. But if you haven't got that, if you're coming from a place of fear, then that that's when you get your toxic relationships because you've still got a polarization but you know it within the toxic relationship the man is the more aggressive possessive dominant you know uh and then the woman is the more subservient victim needy fearful Mm. person in that relationship normally when it comes Mm. to toxic relationships although it can happen in reverse sometimes so i think it just depends you know um how you've been educated to be um, appreciative of your own self-worth uh, and how you, well you've been educated around your self-care both as a man and a woman so you can have that healthy relationship and within that you know the man can, can take control but it's in a healthy assertive you know chivalrous way not not you know the the the, the dominant toxic way yeah yeah i i completely agree it's and and like you say Lynn, it's 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 challenging, right? Because we got we got the bedroom and we've got the boardroom. Yes, right? we've got these these two different environments, and one can, what can be very adaptive in one can be very maladaptive in the other. Uh, you know, I, I always say for men, you know, at the end of the day, we can't feel love without feeling respect. This is our, you know, call it what you will, call it a love language, call it you know whatever it is, but. Uh, per usual, with all these things, I always say that uh, that it's all about perception. So let's say that uh, that uh, you're a woman in a heterosexual relationship, and and you really respect your partner, but at the same time, it's if he doesn't feel respected, then it, he's not respected in his head. It's kind of that perception is reality yes. sort of thing. Uh, I think it's the same with kind of any any love language as well. You know, if uh, if you consider something a word of affirmation and your partner doesn't, and that's their love language, then they don't feel love. Mm. Even though you feel like you're, you know, you're yes. you're pulling your weight, you're saying the nice thing, and that can be very, very challenging. You know, when they call it a labor of love, it's you know, <laughs> literal as well as figurative, right? Uh, to be able to to use these terms, and it's a challenge. I, I think a lot of people, especially men in my generation, and and women as well, but I'm, I'm going to speak from the, the male perspective of millennials right now. You know, there's definitely that perception that relationships, uh, for for some reason, kind of fix things in your life uh, that, you know, if you're single, then it's kind of some sort of like a plague. There's an epidemic of singleness and, you know, you're not, <laughs> you're not cool enough, Lynn, you know, if you don't have a partner and if you're not, you know, going and pulling on a weekly basis and these sorts of things, especially in your early twenties. And I found that kind of as, as we get older, so I'm 32 now again, and, and really what I, I start to see is, is really this, modification in terms of the the recognition that again kind of having somebody else in in your life is something that should make it more fulfilling in the aggregate 
I always say, you know, on, on a day to day basis, if you're expecting to be able to find somebody who each and every day of your life, they're making you, you know, making you feel, you know, 10 times better than you are and, you know, saying the most supportive stuff or getting gifts or doing acts of service for you on a day to day basis. You're going to be single for a long time, my friend. Uh, you know, that's just, you know, not one of these things. But at the same time, if you also respect that uh, we're going to be opening a lot of new doors for new experiences, but there are so many things to cherish about the period of life when you're single. Uh, you know, something as simple as you get the whole bed to yourself. You can yes. roll that way. You can roll this way. You're not running into anybody. You know, you can binge watch Game of Thrones if you want, you know, and, and you know, get Cheeto dust all over your stomach, whatever it is, right? Uh, which, by the way, is like a man's wet dream, right? It's like <laughs> Cheeto dust and Game of Thrones marathon. Uh, you know, sorry, guys, I don't mean to let our secret out, uh, but that, that's essentially what it is. Um, but, but yeah, and, uh, and, you know, I think that, like, like you said, in terms of, uh, you know, with the gender relations thing, uh, you know, it, men, I think, are kind of being led too much in the direction of essentially being pushed a little bit now to feminize in terms of the culture saying, no, no, it's okay. It's okay for you to, to be, you know, to embrace your feminine energy in these things. And I think that if a guy recognizes that and is comfortable doing that, is comfortable crying, is comfortable with kind of expressing himself and his emotions there is so much honor and dignity in that and there's nothing i have more respect for uh at the same time i think if a guy is kind of being pushed to say if you're not doing those things then you're essentially you know somehow not a real man because you're you know not expressing yourself like we say you should be expressing yourself this is very dangerous uh i i think it's yes. right now this, i think you know, in the United States, Len, it's a very unique situation, I would say, insofar, and I live in Washington, D.C., which is, you know, we want to talk about PC culture and these <laughs> sorts of things. It doesn't get a lot more PC than, you know, the nation's capital with the government and everything here. Um, and it, it can feel like walking on eggshells, particularly around uh, around gender issues. It can be very polarized. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think, you know, some of this has come about, um, you know, A, because I think there's been a misunderstanding about what equality actually means, and it should be definitely around equal opportunities. It's not about being the same as, you know, if we was meant to be, um, you know, one of the same gender, we would be born just one of the same asexual being totally. and right. be able to you know, procreate ourselves. There wouldn't be a need for a, a male or a female, uh, yeah. you know, gender differentiation in, in any, you know, of the, not any human race, but the yeah, I mean, walking kingdom full, full stop. So, um, you know, there's a reason why there are males and females. Um, so we need to celebrate those differences. But I think that the reason that I suppose this PC grade has got so far... Um, uh, and such a lot of things wrong, I feel. <laughs> this is just my own perception. It's because, um, you know, um, I, I feel that the, we do need to have sympathy, obviously, for those that are born with probably two sets of um, organs that are both masculine and feminine, for example, or if they're born transgender and they identify with being transgender because they feel that they're in the wrong body, but they've got the opposite sex, you know, and in terms of genitals, then... Obviously, we've, we do need to have compassion for those people. We do need to make provisions for those people. We do need to make sure that, you know, we have empathy 
and, and help those people integrate into society. But the answer isn't to make us all gender confused. <laughs> I agree. I, I totally agree with you. It's, you know, I, 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 again, I used to be a epidemiology professor, which means that we focus on stats and we focus on, I mean, all scientific literature is based on aggregate statistics. You know, there is a, a tiny, tiny, like a really minuscule, relatively speaking, uh, literature, which focuses on studying individuals. Everything else is samples. And, you know, in terms of, it's called null hypothesis statistical testing. So NHST is essentially what all contemporary science, be it in biology or psychology or everything in between, it's what it's based on. So focusing on things at the aggregate level is of incredible importance. And what we see is that when we're looking at things at the aggregate level, we do see very strong and very consistent discrete differences between the genders. It does not mean that, you know, myself versus my father versus John who lives down the street are all the same man. It doesn't mean that to any extent. But looking at things at the aggregate level can give us some insight because remember, all science is about is about predicting the future. Mm. If I can find some scientific effect, then that suggests that I can be more adaptive if I say, okay, I'm going to download that, that software, that information, I'm going to download it in my head, and then I can kind of essentially be more effective in life because I can predict that this is what's going to happen in a given situation. Um, and so focusing on those group level differences, I think, is very important. Um, I mean, there's certain things, me, so like my father's South Asian, so he's from India, my mother's German and British. You know, when I take a look at, uh, so the LGBTQ community in the United States, it's about 5% or so. Uh, the South Asian community in the United States is also like relatively the same size, between 5 to 15%. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me insofar as, you know, we don't talk about, you know, South Asian rights and these mm. sorts of things, you know, we're not going and talking about these things. So it's also, you know, who sets the agenda in terms of which of all of these groups, because all of us fall into so many groups. You know, I'm a man, I'm a millennial, I'm a son, I'm an uncle, I'm a godfather, I'm all these things. Which of these boxes is more important than other boxes to fight for the rights of those individuals? Uh, it's, it's not very clear, I would say, but uh, some of it, uh, some people would argue ends up would be disproportionate. And not that it's not important, but it's disproportionate in importance uh, insofar as, you know, for example, me as being a South Asian, you know, some people would say, well, you know, we, we shouldn't be arguing for South Asians, right? Because there's just not a lot of South Asians, right? <laughs> people can make that argument. I mean, yes. I get it. I, you know, I don't think it's right. I think we should be fighting for South Asians, right? right? But, uh, but at the same time, I would understand why people would talk about it. And of course, these things tend to go in cycles, everything. And this, this is the cycle for this, uh, you know, and I think that it is, uh, to me, it would be absurd to suggest that, you know, people, uh, however they choose to be able to, you know, express their gender are not free to be able to do so and are not respected for being able to do so. My, uh, my world's a little bit strange insofar as, uh, you know, I operate, one of the boxes that I fit into is being a Christian, and I get disappointed sometimes at seeing people who are very intolerant Christians. Yes. Uh, and, and I see this quite a bit, and I was an atheist until I was 21, like a very, very deep, deep, deep atheist, and I particularly hated Christianity. And I mostly hated Christianity because the, uh, the area that I grew up in had a lot of these mega churches. And I uh, went to school with a lot of people who were in these mega churches, and they would tell me that I wasn't baptized, so I was going to hell. 
and you know, just certain things, you know, were, uh, you know, were satanic because I wasn't going to church and these things. And I always said, you know, I'm never going to be feared into a religion. I'm going to be loved into a religion. You're not going to scare me into, into believing in, in a God or, you know, the God or, you know, whatever you believe. Um, and so for me, it was a very personal journey that was, uh, very far from lonely, but it was a very personal journey that I had to take. And so having taken that journey and, you know, it was the best thing I, I did in Israel was that I marathoned the Bible cover to cover, you know, and got into the car and, you know, you read about Sodom and Gomorrah, you get into the Fiat and you drive over to Sodom Valley and you can see the place. It was amazing. Um, and, and in doing that, you know, you get really kind of a deeper appreciation for these sorts of things. And ironically, you know, uh, Christianity can become a version that can become quite dogmatic. Yes. Um, you know, and just anything can become dogmatic. The last thing I'm doing is, is picking on, on faiths, etc. Anything can become dogmatic. And that is adaptive in a certain way, because just evolutionarily speaking, if we think about things from a social sense, you know, it's very evolutionarily adaptive to be able to, you know, let's say that you have somebody, you know, coming over a hill and the person has a different skin tone than you. Well, you can very rapidly assess that this person comes from a different tribe. And if somebody's from a different tribe, you may say, okay, I'm not sure if this person wants to provide my tribe with resources or if they want to take my tribe's resources, etc. So you rapidly sort the person. But wherever you rapidly sort the person doesn't mean that it's right or wrong, but it's a biological prerogative. So this is why certain things that, I mean, I've, I have encountered a lot of racism in my life. Uh, and before I kind of understood the social evolutionary roots of racism, I didn't realize that this is a really adaptive thing. But unfortunately, taken to its natural sociological end, it is the most hateful thing you can imagine. Mm. Uh, and it's the same thing when it comes to, in any dogmatic fashion, judging individuals who fit into any box, be it, be it trans or, you know, uh, my lesbian and gay friends or, or really anything in between in men and women, you know, these are all boxes that we kind of sort ourselves into. Um, but I do agree with you if we're, if we're not respecting these aggregate level differences and just saying there's, yeah, there's no difference. Why? Because I just don't want there to be. Why does there have to be any differences? We're actually doing ourselves a disservice in the name of equality, ironically. Yes. I mean, even in the UK, as we speak, you know, the, we're, there's the um, unisex toilets being introduced in secondary schools. And I think sure. if they're going to be introduced anywhere, that's the worst time in your life to actually introduce it because, you you know, you've got puberty, you've got hormones, you've got, yeah. you know, uh, girls, excuse me, going in, into um, a little bit of detail here, but, you know, they're starting their periods. Yeah. Uh, do of they really course. want boys sharing their, to you know, the toilets with them when they're going through those sort of changes? And do they really want to be surrounded by, you know, probably uh, toilet seats being left up and, and boys pissing on the floor and, you know, That's this right. sort of thing? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think, you know, sometimes it's appropriate to have uh, unisex toilets when we're adults. And, and obviously when we're in younger infants, it's not so, so, um, so, so, such, a, such a problem, but I can see it being a real problem in, in secondary schools, you know, when there's all mm. these pubescent teenagers around uh, and I, I just don't think it's the right way to go or the right direction to go in the name of um, this gender equality thing that, oh, I don't know, it's, fr these, it's uh... frustrating. The teen years, Lena, it's so, I mean, kids can be brutal. 
you know, just in general. Yes. Right? Uh, and the, the teen years can be extremely difficult because what happens is that starting about the age of 12, there's this neurological process that happens. It's got uh, it's got a cool name, which is myelinization. Uh, and the way that I think about it is that let's say that you and I, Lynn, we go to the back of your television and uh, you've got cable TV. So we take a look going from your cable box into your you know television proper. They've got the literal cable. And of course, it's not just all the copper wires and all. No, it's covered by the rubber. Now, if you took the rubber away, you would still have the wires and the wires would still transmit a signal. But the thing is, is that, you know, uh, because rubber is kind of a ground, it's a ground, it's a grounding element. Because of that, you don't end up getting, you know, this loss of signal. It all stays nice, tightly within the wire, uh, sorry, within the, uh, the cable. And because of that, you get a nice, let's say, 4K resolution that's beautiful on your on your television. Well, what happens for, for kids into their teenage years is that we got the same thing. We essentially have these neurons, so these brain cells that kind of look like a little spider. They got this little tail-looking thing called an axon. And this tail-looking thing is where an electrical impulse gets sent. And until you're a teen, there's a part of your brain, it's, the, it's right in between your eyes, and this part of the brain codes for everything that you and I would think about when it comes to socializing and being an effective member of a little community by right, socialization. And that part of the brain doesn't have the quote-unquote rubber to be able to insulate the signal, so it's almost like a low-resolution signal. And when you're a teen, these little fat cells come along and wrap themselves around that tail and of uh, the neuron. And so this results in you getting a 4K signal all of a sudden and things that have always been there in your in your brain come into you know, high definition. And this results in, in two phenomena. The first is called the imaginary audience. And, and everybody's been through this, every human being in every culture, right? This idea that let's say you're walking through the hall of your high school and you trip and you just think everybody is looking at you. Mm. Everybody's making comments. Oh my gosh, I'm I'm so embarrassed. I'll never live this down. Da, da, da. When in actuality, you know, average working memory lasts for about 24, 25 seconds. Then nobody remembers. Nobody cares. They're on to the next thing. They're you know looking at the next thing. But it doesn't matter. It'll kind of ruin your whole day. And the second phenomenon is called the personal fable, which is this idea that certain things happen in your life, but it doesn't necessarily mean they happen in others. Uh, and vice versa. For example, let's say that you go to, to class and there's uh, uh, a man who is uh, quadriplegic because, uh, you know, he was texting and driving and he ended up, you know, in a wheelchair for the rest of his life because of it. And he comes to school to tell you about his experience and says, you know, please do not text and drive. And ironically, you would think the school leadership says, well, this is great. I want to make sure that this gentleman comes in and our students get an opportunity to to listen to him because that would suggest that they won't do it in the future. But ironically, because of the personal fable, oftentimes what happens is you listen to this guy and you say, wow, what, this is just such an, an awful thing. But that would never happen to me if I text and drive because that's not my life. That's not my story. Things like that don't happen to me. Mm. Other people have unprotected sex and end up having a child, but, yes. but not me. Yes. That does It's not my story. I'm the protagonist of my movie, right? It just kind of doesn't happen to me. So these things are all happening in your high school years, but ironically, because we're so young at that age, we don't have, experience is such a buffer, right? You can't have wisdom without experience. And so we essentially have people who, you know, little, little humans, little adults, who are, you know, essentially this, these bottles of hormones 
uh, and who are just now having this myelinization happen, which is unlocking all of these different cognitive issues. And at the same time, we're asking them to essentially, you know, be adults about things like gender differences, like, you know, men running, you know, little boys or whatever. I mean, I remember all my friends being teenagers and these things, everybody's holding binders in front of their pants because they're getting uncontrollable erections. (laughs) You're a little 13 year old boy with a red binder in front of your pants. Trust me, that's every little boy. I'm telling you right now. Right. You know, that's just as embarrassing. That is the male equivalent of, of getting your period is uncontrollable erections at 730 in the morning in gym class. I'm telling you right now, uh, you know, so everybody's struggling with these sorts of issues um, and making it making it more difficult in, you know, and, and calling it equality, calling it, you know, like PC and these sorts of things. I think part of it is wonderful, especially in spirit. It's wonderful. In terms of practical application, though, sometimes the things that, you know, are the, the best laid plans can can end up backfiring a little bit. So I think we're going to have to see what happens there. I think it certainly is starting to backfire because, I mean, and, and I don't know whether it's been substantiated or not, but I even heard that there, there was a girl that had been raped as a result of, you know, being uh, cornered by some guy, some nods in, in the, you know, in the, one of these unisex toilets. So it's just like, you know... it. it to me, it's it's just common sense that you 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 just don't do that, especially in in that age group. <laughs> you know, it's like it's almost getting to the point now where we can't refer to each other as boy, girl, man, woman because we're going to be offended yeah. by those terms. It's true. It's, you know, it's true. Tr- trigger warning, Lynn. Trigger warning. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I know. I know. It's it's a very difficult time. The things are moving so fast. The technology doesn't help. You know, I, it's funny. All these neuroscience studies or whatever that I've been reading recently. This is the interesting thing about having been a research professor for the last decade is that, you know, I tend to to call BS on more things than than I don't call BS on. And mostly because, you know, if you show me the data, then I'm more likely to believe you. But even then, I need to look at the methodology from which that data was derived before I say whether I believe it or not. So I really try to be kind of a conscientious consumer of, of the literature. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating taking a look at differences between uh, you know, different age groups and also uh, age groups uh, amongst cultures that have different access and use patterns of social media. And what you end up seeing is that, you know, the more somebody is using social media, the more that somebody is using methods of communication that are textual. So literally texting, you know, writing to somebody on Messenger, you know, WhatsApp, Viber, et cetera. What ends up happening is that the parts of your brain, right, there's two discrete parts of your brain that have to do uh, with vocal production, right, of language, as well as the reception of verbally communicated speech, right? Uh, They essentially get weaker. And so what ends up happening is that we literally are training our brains to be ineffective at socializing. Because remember that our brains, we're not evolved to iPhones and iPads and texting and these things. You know, we're evolved to being, you know, nomadic cave people, essentially. Uh, And so because of that, you know, it's really a slippery slope. I mean, we have not had, I mean, industrial revolution was like, what little over a hundred years ago, we've had like yes. one or two generations and, and things, you know, it can change very, very rapidly. And uh, again, technology is such a phenomenal thing, but unless we're careful, I like to say that a lot of technology, especially social media is like, it's like Splenda, like sucralose, because it looks like sugar and it tastes like sugar, but that ain't sugar. Same thing with social media. That may look like socializing and that may feel like socializing, 
But that ain't socializing. Unless you're actually out there communicating with somebody else, having that human interaction, which is what we're evolved to be able to do. We, you know, back in hunter-gatherer days, I mean, we would not be able to survive without our little local community. Yes. These days, I mean, you can literally, you know, sit inside your uh, your duplex with Amazon.com, get everything delivered to you, barely go outside, uh, you know, and, and that's going to lead to a very unfulfilled life uh, predominantly because uh, we're biologically programmed to be social creatures and to be able to have those those outlets and those relationships. And that's what I'm suppose I'm educating, you know, um, people around is that, you know, we've been, you know, what what creates fulfilling relationships has has been what's Mm. created fulfilling relationships since the Stone Age, you know, since man first walked the earth. There's, you know, there's wisdom in the ancients um, and what worked for them, you know, and just because, you know, our modern world is saying this doesn't make it right. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. So I, I do believe, you know, there's a lot of wisdom to be taken from, from what was naturally inherent within us, you know, since mankind first walked the earth and um, and what, as I say, creates healthy, fulfilling relationships is the same now as it was, you know, when fan, man first walked the earth. And um, as I say, that's why I'm fearful around some of these changes in the name of equality, in the name of, political correctness what i'm seeing now is is sort of horrifying me (laughs) i I agree i think it's also horrifying though that simply calling it out simply saying that you're worried about you know any of us saying that we're worried about it ironically places a target on our backs that somehow we're against equality simply because we have these concerns you know yeah and then that's obviously not the case because I, i all i'm trying to educate people around is it that equality means equal opportunities it doesn't mean being this you know women being the same as men or vice versa i totally agree i totally agree well on that note um (laughs) we're coming to the end now of our uh, interview it's been it's been fascinating having this chat with you phoenix um what is it you're currently up to and what what are you currently doing just tell the listeners a little bit about that and then uh, we can end with you giving some contact information Absolutely, Lynn. Thank you. So, yeah, I run a company in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area here in the United States. The name of the company is The Model Man. Uh, and you can reach us at www.themodelman.com. Uh, you can also follow me on social media, which is at Dr. So Dr. Phoenix, like the bird, Singh, S-I-N-G-H. Uh, and essentially what our goal is, Lynn, so we're, we're uh, a bespoke concierge matchmaking service. And we work domestically as well as internationally, uh, especially when it comes to coaching. So our big passion is working with men. And we see our our clients not only as being men, but also women, even though we don't work directly with women, because our goal is to build better men. And of course, this can only be a good thing for women uh, if we build better men. That's great. I love it. I was going to say, so it's a free service for women because we're building good guys for you, right? Great Uh, stuff. This is kind of what our goal is. Uh, and it's very much to be able to to help men get in touch with their masculine energy, to be able to see how healthy and how wonderful it is to be a man, to be able to uh, essentially cut to the core of not only what it is to be a man in, in the contemporary Western world, but also uh, to be able to grapple with some of these cultural questions that are brought out from different things. Like, for example, there was that Gillette razor ad, for example, you know, this, this past year, I've had so many young men talk to me about it. And, 
and say that it really bothered them because, you know, the, the women in their lives, they talked to about it. Uh, and just them, they've internalized this idea that almost within every man, there's like a hidden tyrant that if men aren't careful, all men want to be sexual abusers. All men want to harass women or to subjugate women. And men get very frightened by this because they say, no, like, I don't, I don't feel that way, but I'm being told that that's how I should want to feel almost. So is there something wrong with me? Am I defective in some way, shape or form? Or if I'm trying to be a quote unquote nice guy, why is this for some reason not working for me in terms of being able to attract someone that I'm attracted to while at the same time I'm being told that to be what is perceived to be a quote unquote strong man, somebody who dominates, etc. I'm told that I shouldn't be doing those things, but at the same time it's being perceived as attractive. There's just so much confusion. And so really what our passion is, is to work with young men to be able to, to disentangle uh, the, this kind of ball of yarn that we as men in uh, the contemporary world are kind of handed, uh, but very much to play a supportive role and very much an evidence-based role such that we're not kind of telling you what we believe or just trying to support and inform based on what the extant research literature suggests. Yeah, and it's all about, I suppose, bringing out the same as what I'm doing with women, you know, what is naturally within them, you know, yes. the, the, the natural healthiest best selves, you know, yes. and what that looks like, you know, from a feminine perspective and understanding, you know, yes, they've got masculine energy, but, the, you know, the, the, there needs to be times and places when that's appropriate to use. Of course, of course, totally agree. So on that note, uh, thank you ever so much. I've really enjoyed this, Phoenix. And we'll have to do another episode another time around another subject because it's been great. Really loved it. Thanks and so um, for the benefit of the listeners, I shall make sure that Phoenix's um, contact information is put in the show notes should you want to have a look there and, and check him out and what he's doing. And uh, if you're a woman, you know, let him let, let your man know what he's up to. and. <laughs> Please do. I'd love to hear from him. <laughs> and uh, if you're a man, then obviously you know where to go now to to yes. become that best ideal masculine man that women really, really want. You know, because we want masculine men. Believe me, you know, we don't want feminine yes. men. If we're That's a feminine right. woman uh, or an, even a strong masculine woman who's unaware that we're in a masculine, we want a masculine man. <laughs> we just don't understand that we're I repelling totally him sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you're a woman who wants a masculine man but doesn't have one, be sure to get in touch as well so that we can hook you up with one. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that. So on that note, I want you to remember, listeners, always remember that true love starts with opening our hearts. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hearts Entwined podcast. For now, until next time, goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Hearts Entwined podcast. You can follow Lynn via the Facebook group Two Hearts Entwined or search Lynn Smith, inspirational speaker at LinkedIn or email lynn at hearts-entwined.com. That's L-Y-N at hearts-entwined.com. Remember, true love starts with opening our hearts.